As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. I probably shouldn't tell you this, but I'm going to. Because that was perfect. That's me. I love it. It's a great challenge for you to look down every nook and cranny. (laughs) I could be here forever. 
Just to put things in perspective. And I think that's a sign of a good detective. This is the Narell Fraser Conversations on Australian True Crime. Because women don't always have to be the subjects of true crime for all the worst reasons. And I thought I was going to get pinged there and then. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. Just the, the numbers were just growing. Um, and looking at it, you just thought there's no way you could survive. It was just, yeah, it was unreal. Okay, my guest today was a member of Victoria Police for 22 years. Uh, she attained the rank of Detective Sergeant at Diamond Creek Socket Sex Offence and Child Abuse Investigative Team. She won three AW's Police Person of the Year in 2002. She's um, what's called Participant Protection Manager at Racing Victoria. It's a newly created position to respond and investigate incidents of inappropriate conduct within the thoroughbred thoroughbred racing industry. Um, Such things as like, say, harassment, discrimination and workplace bullying. She was Principal Investigator at IBAC, uh, the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission. She was um, Manager of Investigations in the Northern Territory Office of the Children's Commissioner. She was a Senior Detective in Child Abuse Task Force in Northern Territory. And in the aftermath of 2009 Black Saturday, she was part of a team of police, allocated duties at Strathewan, Arthurs Creek and St Andrews, beautiful little hamlets within about an hour from Melbourne CBD. And that is the subject of today's podcast. Uh, Today's podcast comes with a warning, though, to anyone affected by that day. Depending on where you are with your recovery or your management um, of your own personal issues. Today's stories, it's a beautiful story, but it's also really confronting in other ways. And I'd have to say that listener caution is advised. Of the 200 residents who lived in Strathewan, 22 residents died. 22 out of 200. A further 14 residents of St Andrews lost their lives on that day and another two at Arthur's Creek. These are tiny little hamlets. Strathewan is a gorgeous little Victorian town, a country town about 45 k's northeast of Melbourne, which was decimated on that day. And Bald Spur Road winds its way through bush up on a ridgeline from St Andrews to King Lake Central. And on that road alone, 22 people lost their lives. So with a few scratch teams of police from Diamond Creek, their brief was to search for survivors, but unfortunately, there were very many. Instead, they were confronted with a large amount of human remains. What my guest today witnessed with her colleagues was a grief and sadness beyond comprehension to most of us, but an experience which connected her and her colleagues to this day, and it will forever. Yet through all this grief and sadness, it's a beautiful story 
which is everything from heart wrenching to heart warming. Now, that's one hell of an introduction, and you will get to speak right now, Kira. So please oh, welcome <laughs> my very dear friend, Kira Olney. Welcome, Kira. Thank you, my friend. So I suppose we should start off for uh, the listeners and give them a very, very brief rundown on, uh, well, if, if I can be brief, I'll try, <laughs> but on, on how we met. Kira and I met uh, the 2000 Olympics, and no, we, and we weren't participating. We were both at the squads in town. I was at Missing Persons. Where were you? Where were you, no, Kira? I, at, I think you were at Sex Crimes, actually, Narelle, and I was oh, at Missing. Uh, I was at um, Homicide. Homicide. Okay. And it was they before asked, we started working together. Yes, well, I didn't know you and you didn't know me from a bar of soap. I've never even seen you around. So what they did was, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but they asked, uh, the police were given the um, responsibility of um, what's called a liaison officer. So that was really uh, for the Olympic teams that were coming to Melbourne to train and to play off for a medal in Sydney. How am I going so far? Is that about wrong? Yeah, and that was for the soccer teams. Oh, no, I think it was for um, oh, a number of things. It wasn't just soccer. I think it was a whole lot of different things, baseball, all, all sorts of stuff. However, when the police asked for volunteers, um, thought it might be a bit of a break, a bit of a holiday actually, <laughs> and you felt the same, didn't you? I did. I think the other alternative was that um, we were all taken offline, I suppose, for the, there was all the uh, WEF demonstrations going on just prior. So mm. I remember there was a bit of a choice that they were trying to get teams together to help either with WEF, which was all those horrible protests, or we could go the oh, junket. So we both go um, up to um, I don't know uh, the tenth floor where they were choosing. You know um, who wanted, not who wanted. They were choosing who to um, work on which teams. Who was liaison officer for which teams? And I'd been told get onto the USA Women's Soccer Team if you can because they are like they are world renowned. I didn't know a thing about soccer, and neither did you. No, no. So I might take let you take over from here. Um, so we sat down at the desk at the um, big conference room and I yeah. happened to sit next to this blonde girl I'd never seen before. That's right. And I remember you saying, I think, I think you actually elbowed me and said, hey, whispered to me, I've heard the US soccer te girls team's the, the team to go with. Um, would you be interested? Okay. I didn't really know anything. So... So I thought, oh, here this lovely lady is asking me to join her. She seemed pretty friendly. I thought, yeah, why not? And then, yeah, then we, I think you put up your hand and said, yes, we'll do that. I don't think we even knew each other's names, but um, no, we didn't. Went off to the Hilton, drove down um, to the Hilton and met the team. And that was, I think, when they came on the bus. I think um, that was early days. But, yeah, obviously that was how first introduction to each other as well as the American girls soccer team and wow look what's happening yeah. and so um I might start off with a few questions about uh, that very impressive career 
it does sound interesting, your role um, that you're now doing at Racing Victoria. Um, I believe that's a whole new department. Uh, can you tell us what that position entails and why your position was created? It was basically at, um, created on the back of recommendations made by the Royal Commission into Child Sexual Abuse, where they developed some um, child safety national principles and that expanded, well, that included sporting organisations. Um, because racing, the industry has quite a few young, vulnerable people in it. Victoria saw it as a, a bit of a, um, an area that they needed to develop. So thankfully for me, um, they created this position. So I'm basically, I sit within the integrity department that manage the, any cases that might come in or concerns about participants that have um, endured or getting harassed or sexually harassed or workplace bullying, that sort of thing. So it's evolving. And But I also manage the speak up policy, which is similar to the whistleblowers policy. So we're trying to encourage people to come forward about improper conduct and, and misconduct in the industry. And then your roles in Northern Territory, um, oh God, they must have been so difficult on so many levels because they involve kids, children, and um, more often than not, those kids, um, well, I imagine most of them that came to your notice would be um, vulnerable, I suppose many disadvantaged, neglected, um, and really it doesn't get much sadder than that, does it? No, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me. I mean, I'd been in uh, police and sort of specialised in child abuse for oh, probably six years prior to going up to the NT and I I sort of went there thinking that it's, you know, that I basically had come across anything and everything, but once I got there, it certainly opened my eyes. I had no idea the scale of child abuse. I, I did a lot of um, remote work um, whilst I was at the Child Abuse Task Force, but, um, yeah, there was some things that you just thought, oh, gosh, I can't believe that sort of happened, but unfortunately they did. What what um, what did you find most challenging about working up in NT? Probably the level of abuse um, for the very very young, like the talking two year olds, that sort of thing. That was what was quite um, con you know confronting for me. I hadn't seen that level of abuse down in Victoria, but that was something that yeah I found quite challenging. Um, is there a situation or investigation that you've had trouble forgetting? Yeah, look, there's been, I mean, I think one yeah, that I really struggled with actually happened after I'd left um, the Child Abuse Task Force and gone over to the Children's Commission. But um, I'd been working with a, a young girl at a remote community. We'd started to make headway in, in getting some an understanding of what was happening to her because they're, they're very reluctant to disclose. Um, that's the, a really big challenge. Um, but we finally got got her to start um, disclosing and so we were getting an understanding of what was going on. Um, and then, yeah, I just transferred across to the Children's Commission and found out that she actually committed suicide. So didn't um, a way out really hard to deal with because I thought that we were making inroads and 
you know, I was sort of hoping that we could continue helping her and, and getting her out of that environment. But, yeah, unfortunately she took her own life. So, Is there an investigation where you felt you made a difference to a child? I mean, I'm sure you made a difference to every child that you um, dealt with, but there is, is there a special one? Um, yeah, look, there was a few that, and they, they're the ones that keep you going too. So you sort of, I suppose you hold on to those ones, but one, one kid, when I first arrived at the child abuse task force, um, there was one young girl that it was a clear grooming case. It was just so classic grooming. Um, we worked, uh, really well with, um, Department of Children and Families, so the equivalent to DHS up, up there. Um, we were able to get a protection order, so she was removed from the family, which sort of forced the mum, mum's hand, I suppose. It was a friend of the mum's that was grooming this young girl, and um, sort of forced the mum to start thinking about protecting her own daughter. Anyway, as as time went on, um, we got a full disclosure from this young girl, and it led to led to a lot of evidence that we gathered and we were able to charge this guy with a heap of offences and one of them was maintaining a sexual relationship with a child under 16. So that's, um, it was, and it went to court and he pleaded guilty, which was, so it was a good result. Vic Paul, um, I've got to ask, what did you do to receive the honour, the <laughs> huge honour of being named 3AW's Police Person of the Year? I think back then it wasn't, it was a bit of a, a tongue-in-cheek. It's sort of evolved now, but look, it was just a sly that, that John Sylvester, who um, runs the award, um, he took a, a liking to one of my cases that I was handed when I um, went to cold case at Homicide. And um, it was just a, a you know, an, an historical one from the 84, I think it was, and at the time, couldn't take it any further, but we got some new information um, and just landed on my desk. So, yeah, I investigated it. And it was actually a, an investigation into a, a murder where the, a husband was the victim and he um, was slowly poisoned with arsenic from his loving wife over a two-year period in the early 80s. And then, um, yeah, we managed to... Get a conviction she's um serving a 22 year sentence you know that's interesting you say that because uh recently um an investigation i did a podcast on um operation collier was about a series of unsolved abductions and rapes and i was explaining about how cases that are not solved or unsolved um they're never forgotten uh black saturday it was the 7th of february uh, 2009 and I really it was as if the whole of Victoria was burning um, and really much of it was um, a lot of the fires merged due to um, really high temperatures never um, having been experienced in Victoria before in fact at one point um, the temperature reached 46.4 in the Melbourne CBD. And the trouble was the high winds were changing direction and speed constantly, and that had catastrophic consequences. We had 173 lives lost, with over 400 suffering serious uh, injuries. But then, of course, my passion, psychological injuries suffered have affected thousands. Then there's those who came to help 
in the bushfires, the, um, the volunteers, emergency services, government officials and reps, support services, and we could go on about them, you know, the Salvos, Red Cross, Rotary. It's such a long list, um, but it would have affected them also. They did find out it was established that fallen power lines were the cause of the majority of fires, but there were a few arsonists also charged. I know my own experience of Black Saturday, um, it was so traumatic. It was a really, really dark day for Victorians. Beyond the human casualties of Black Saturday um, were the following stats. Um, I won't go into too much other than to say there are over 7,500 people displaced, over just over 2,000 houses lost. We had machinery sheds by the hundreds, hay sheds by the hundreds, dairies, wool sheds, livestock, fodder, grain, like it just goes on and on, vines, um, olives, fruit trees, community buildings. Um, fences, I think there's over 10,000 kilometres of fencing uh, that were destroyed. And I, again, I don't know how you measure the psychological damage uh, to not just those who were there, but to the thousands of others affected in their own way. Which brings me to you, the lovely Kira. Can you tell the listeners where you were stationed at the time of Black Saturday and um, been called up to assist. Basically, could you take us through your recollections of the day? Yeah, so I was um, a detective sergeant at Diamond Creek Socket, so where I finished my career with VicPol, so the Sexual Offences and Child Abuse Investigation Team. So our unit was responsible for, you know, obviously the, the investigations of sexual assaults and child abuse matters, but during emergency um, emergencies, we were tasked to coordinate any relief centres that were set up and we also contributed to the roster for the fire patrols on total fire van days. Um, on that day, I actually wasn't on duty. I, I um, had already been rostered for a, an extra shift at the Mooney Valley races of all things. So I don't know that's why I ended up racing. But anyway, on, on that morning, Pete, my fellow sergeant at, at Socket, was working the morning shift in the op centre. And I remember I did speak to him a few times during the day. I mean, I was basically, like everyone else, locked in the house just to trying to get away from the heat and the wind and everything. And obviously I was conscious of... I lived in the area as well, so obviously I was conscious of that. And um, so I spoke to Pete a couple of times during the day and... It was all pretty calm, and but I, I remember just before he knocked off at three, I remember him, when I last spoke to him, I said, um, you know, what's the go? And he said, oh, there's a big, big fire up out at Kilmore Way, but, you know, no, it's all, all good. But, you know, the wind changes, well, that's going to be an issue. We're pretty well stuffed. So, so yeah, I was rostered on it just to start at four, but um, I had to go to a... Um, to Greensboro to pick up a car and then pick up a couple of members from there and then we drove into Moon Valley. So, and it was this one, I don't know, I just remember I didn't want to go. I just remember feeling like I was, I needed to be, well, not only home because it was such a foul day, but I just felt that I needed to be in the, you know, your own patch sort of thing. I just didn't feel right, but I reluctantly went in picked up the members and we drove in and not long into the shift, I remember 
hearing someone overhearing someone talking about a big fire at Bendigo and I thought mm. um my parents aren't far from there so I read I, I think I'd spoke to them during the day but once I heard this I, I think I rang again just to check and dad uh, dad said oh yeah there's been a really nasty fire at Bendigo and I think by then they'd already confirmed that someone had lost their life there um and then he said oh there's one out at Whittlesey as well so once I got off the phone to Dad, I actually just switched the radio, our police radio, onto Channel 67. So that was our channel. You could just tell from the transmissions that all hell had broken loose. It was horrific what we were hearing. Um, you know, obviously people or members coming up, um, urgent, that sort of thing. Oh, it was just, and you could hardly hear them. There was lots of broken transmissions and just panic, absolute panic. Um, and we know, don't we, that when um, the police radio, when somebody says urgent, um, that is everyone stops in their tracks, don't they? It is an awful feeling when police on the radio, on the police radio say urgent because you yeah. know that's very rare that that happens really. Exactly, so, your heart sinks. Yeah. And because I was so far away as well, it wasn't as if I was in the patch. So I just, I remember hearing the call sign for my um, members, so at Diamond Creek Socket, they're 463. I heard them come up at one stage, so I knew that they were there. Um, it was quite a broken transmission. I could only get bits and pieces. And I really started to think, holy crap. Um, mm -hmm. And at that time, I just said to the guys I was, we were working with, we've got to go. But I just said we've got to go and so we the three of us drove back to Greensboro um, and all, I can remember we just sat in silence listening to the radio transmissions just mm. trying to sort out you know in our heads what was going on and then switching between that and the ABC I reckon it, it seemed like it took forever to get back to Greensboro but I do do remember trying to call Paul, my, my husband, because he's in the job as well. So he was working at um, Whittlesey that night. Um, oh, wow. So I, yeah. I started to think, holy crap, he's there as well. And, you know, 10,000 things go through your mind. But by the time I got back, um, I went to Don Creek. It was dark. It was, so it must have been, well, I suppose it was daylight saving then. So it must have been after nine. But I do remember it was dark by the time I got back to Don Creek. And... I just remember there was cars everywhere. There was cars parked in elite, you know, it's all over the place. And I just remember seeing cars everywhere, but no one, I couldn't find anyone. It was just bizarre. But when I went in the back door of the station, the first thing I remember was that smell of smoke. Just, you know, you go to it, you might go camping and you sit around the campfire all night and the next morning you just stink of smoke. But I couldn't find, there was no one around. It was just bizarre. And our office was upstairs, so it, Went up there and I saw, found Bosnian. and um, he was on the phone and I could sort of, um, obviously I could hear his side of the conversation and I then realised that he was on the, on the phone to the coroner's court or the, um, the morgue um, and he was having a conversation about lodging some what we call 83, so the forms that um, register a death. So he was trying to do that and he was getting frustrated and finally he got off the phone and 
he said, oh, they've told me not to bother. There's going to be a heap more. So, and he was obviously just distraught. I think he said, I don't know where Brooksy is. So I, I went and went for a walk and found her. And I just, I didn't know what to say to, to Brooksy. And I just remember, I just gave her a hug. I just, are you okay? And she was quite, um, yeah, just silent sort of thing. She couldn't speak. and But I remember she had a her vest on her reflective vest and it was had singe marks all over it she stunk of smoke and I thought what the hell have they been through you know I just thought yeah. so I tried to sort of talk to them and find out what was going on and they were just exhausted and obviously they come across a, a guy that had um had an accident on a motorbike so that was who because he was trying to register as deceased mm-hmm. and basically right at the when the, the fire front hit and then I finally heard uh, the boss of Diamond Creek, um, not our unit, but of Uniform, who's um, an absolute legend. I heard Spencey's voice and so I'd gone in there and they were in the ops centre and there was a couple of bosses there. And, and actually, I actually remember, all I can remember thinking was they need a cup of tea. How stupid is that? Which I like a cup of tea. I think I asked them about 20,000 times, which I like a cup of tea, as you do. Can you just um, help the listeners? What's the op centre that you talk about? Okay, so each division um, on a total fire band day will set up a, an op centre and they liaise with the, the CFA. And so, yeah, I found him in the op centre, which is just a room off the, the kitchen, hence why I kept yeah. asking for a cup of tea. Spence, who, I mean, he'd been working the, the whole time. So, um, but yeah, he was still, yeah coordinating and everything was calm and he said oh look can you can you do me one favor can you come down to the relief center down at diamond creek which had been set up i just need to check in on them and given that that's our portfolio thought oh yeah absolutely so we went and there actually wasn't any members at the center at the time obviously we were a bit short on resources so it had just sort of been set up i remember going downstairs to try and find some keys. I mean, the, the station, which is usually pretty schmicko because Spencey runs it, but it, there was stuff, every, obviously, there was stuff everywhere. There was... Um, Chaos. Yeah, was, yeah. Yep. I couldn't find the car keys. And so I'm trying to... I'm hunting around in the watch house trying to find the car keys and I look up and I see some headlights in the in the CCTV camera and it was a big truck and I was oh. And it was backing up and I could hear the reverse lights on and then press the, the buzzer to be let in. And um, so I put the intercom on. I couldn't hear him, so I went outside. And he said, oh, man, love, I've just got the truck um, that, you know, Spencey's ordered. Where do you want me to put it? And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, so I opened the gate and just – and then he got out and he started telling me how to turn the fridge, the fridge on, the refrigerated truck thinking what the hell do we need a truck for? you know it was just like I don't know yeah. anyway I thought oh yeah all right so I've gone back inside and I said told Spence and he goes oh yeah that's um yeah we, we've got that because we're going to need it I said oh what how much food are we I know I was thinking what for and then of course it dawned on me it's for the bodies just unreal and there was already a, a um, deceased person in at the CFA next door who'd um had a heart attack so that was basically the the start of I suppose realization for me that this is this is just 
you know, massive. Anyway, so Spencey and I went down to the relief centre and even before we got to the entrance, we were just, we were mo- it was like we were, I suppose because we were wearing uniform, we were just mobbed by people desperate for information and obviously we didn't have much information. But So we eventually returned to the station. It was probably about 3am by that time and started to get rosters going for to man the relief centres and, and the next day to start getting some search teams together. I did duck home. I had to duck home. I had a shower. I was just was so still so hot, and and I also had to check on my dogs because um inside because it was so hot. So Paul arrived. What about home. Paul? Oh, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So he arrived home as I was heading out back up to work. Um, and it was then that I found out that he the reason why he wasn't answering his phone obviously he was flat chat because he was the only unit in the area that was basically responding to normal jobs everyone else had been taken up to Whittlesea and up the mountain so um he was running around like a headless chook trying to respond to jobs and then some idiot decided to punch on with him um and they all ended up in a barbed wire fence so he ended up at the north ended up at the northern hospital they all needed to get tetanus Mm. jabs and yeah so he was exhausted but anyway and um, I didn't see him for another five days. So yeah. you've, you've been working since uh, four o'clock on the Sunday or the Saturday? The Saturday, uh, Saturday. yeah. Right you've been working since four you've got home at three to have a quick shower no sleep touch base with Paul and you're back. And obviously I had to deal with the relief centre because that was our main responsibility mm-hmm. so and yeah all our members didn't hesitate to come in even Fozzie and Brooksy came in they were probably the first ones there and I'm thinking oh god mm-hmm. do they really need to Fozzie was just adamant he wanted to be a part of the scratch crews that we were forming to go and search um and he kept saying well I've been up there I know exactly where people are that sort of thing so did you feel conflicted in a way because you've got members, I suppose you've got to think of their um, their welfare, but um, it sounds like um, Foz, Foz and um, Brooksy are, are just like me. Um, I, I don't know what it is with policing, but I remember I rang the, our inspector and I pleaded with him, I want to go, I want to help, I don't care what you tell me to do, I'll do. I don't know what it is that draws you. It's just so confronting and so shocking and everything. I don't know what it is that makes you want to be there, you know, mm. and help. I suppose that's why we all joined the job, though, isn't it, really? So I was with the search team and, and Pete and Foz and I were one team and I think there was about probably six other teams made up of um, uniform and um, plainclothes people just from the area sort of thing. So they were just basically scratch crews. and um, yep. but Yeah, we were basically just tasked to go and, uh, I suppose, canvas property by property as to, you know, if there were survivors or anyone that needed first aid, that sort of thing, and um, report in. Um, so we, we were in uniform. Um, it was just normal uniform. At that stage, we didn't have any overalls or anything like that, so we just went out in our uniform, just took out our 
you know, our OST equipment, so our, our firearm and um, OST, uh, OC spray and your baton, just your normal sort of equipment. Mm -hmm. the, the cars always had first aid kits and fire kits in them, particularly because we were in that fire prone area. So we made sure that the fire kits were, um, and they, you know, they'll have a blanket and um, goggles, that sort of thing, a couple mm -hmm. of masks. So... I remember seeing actually all the fire kits had been sort of opened up and so we had to replenish them with what we could. And I also remember searching around in the boot for a roll of crime scene tape. So you go, oh, yeah, we've got half a roll here. Let's chuck that in as well, you know. Not expecting to be, yeah, yeah. using it like yeah. we did. But anyway, we did. Um, and the, I also remember grabbing, I had a couple of, a bit of a stash of muesli bars and stuff in my desk, so I grabbed some of those and I think we grabbed some chips from the little snack thingy at the station and took a couple of bottles of water and off we went. So the three of us, we were in a sedan, I think, but the three of us um, were obviously from the same office, so we knew each other and, and Pete and Foz have been mates for a very long time and obviously we're all you know, good mates, but um, mm. I think from that time on, that was, yeah, we're, we're more than good mates now because um, of what we experienced from that time onwards, I suppose. So I just remember seeing green grass and thinking, oh, oh, you know, there's green grass. And then mm. all of a sudden it was like there had been a straight line drawn down the paddock. It was green grass and then everything was black. That contrast was oh, it was unreal, and then all of a sudden I started seeing dead cows and horses lying in paddocks, and just everything was just black. And how were you feeling at that point? I was still in a bit of shock, but from what Fozzie had described to us, I was expecting. I suppose I was expecting um, animals because of the fire front, the way it came through, but I don't think I expected to see many bodies. Oh, I think. You know, I was sort of hoping that people got out. And I remember the first property we came to, um, it was like walking on Mars. It was just, yeah, well, I've never been to Mars, but I'm only assuming it was like I likened it to Mars of what you see on documentaries and stuff, but it was just, and the, oh, just the no sound was just, the only sound you would get would be a falling tree and that would echo. Just, yeah, it was just, nothing it was just everything was burnt and oh it was just yeah and then we actually went into one property that had been fully destroyed and then over the hill we saw this four-wheel drive coming towards us so they were the first people we actually saw it was a carload of about five or six people in this four-wheel drive they wound down the window i don't think they got out they wound down the window and all their faces were black and you know the eyes were really red and you know, they're obviously okay, but all they wanted from us, we need our horses. We're really worried about our horses. They're in pain. They need to be destroyed. Um, can you help us? And, I mean, we couldn't because we only had our 38 revolvers. They're not powerful enough to kill a horse. And, and we only had six bullets, you know, 18 bullets between us. So, And I'm not a very good shot. And we said, oh, look, we'll see what we can do, you know, try and get someone from... Um, yeah, someone to come down and, and destroy them. And I just I just remember feeling, I can't, how can we just leave them? And But, yeah, we had to. Took down their names because we were 
obviously taking down anyone that we found sort of I remember I gave him a bottle of water and that was it we left I thought what the hell what mm. you know what happened what was that yeah we didn't even hear how they survived already I think they actually I don't even know their names now to this day but I think they survived by jumping in the pool they never came across them again and I never got the chance to say look I'm sorry I hopefully someone was able to destroy their horses pretty soon but and then the next human contact we had was when we went to a house um, that was still standing in Arthur's Creek so we're sort of doing a door-to-door and the family there came out to greet us and let us know that that they'd actually um, called triples at triple zero not long before we arrived because their neighbor's 18 year old son had um, he'd arrived and feared that his son parents were still in the house which had been destroyed because they'd been up to the driveway but saw the house had been destroyed and there was also some CFA tape across the driveway so they came back and that's when they called triple zero so we went up there and sure enough there was CFA tape across the driveway and the house had been fully destroyed and garage and so forth and then Pete I heard Pete yell out oh they're in here I found them down here We've gone down there and I went down some steps into what looked like a, a cellar and saw a, a man and, and a woman. They were lying together and they were holding hands. So I've already started now. So this is, um, I think just the fact, I suppose it, they were the first people we came across too, but the fact that they were holding hands, that was, it was lovely that they could be together, I suppose. And then they were cradling me a little dog. And, um, but they weren't burnt. They couldn't, I can, they were fully identifiable. So I think. I didn't think, I didn't think we'd get, I didn't think we'd get through this. Oh my goodness. Just the thought of seeing seeing them holding hands. Oh, and their little dog. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and there was a little, a small pile of vomit next to the dog's mouth. I remember thinking, and that's when I thought, oh, well, we all thought, oh, well, they're suffocated because they weren't burnt. So, yeah, we added a small piece of crime scene tape that I had in the boot. We just added that to the CFA tape just as a sign that, you know, this is crime scene effectively. When you found them and they're obviously deceased, so do you do anything crime scene-wise? Like what was your role in that? Yeah, so we couldn't do the normal sort of procedure where you have to remain at the property. Um, yep. yep. We were just told that we needed to, to mark it as a, a crime scene and notify comms that, of the address and obviously note down the address and any, you know, if we were able to say who, who we thought it was. So we had that information from the son. Was the son there with you? So he stayed, the, the people at the um, neighbour's house, they were just so lovely. They took care of him and, I mean, they they obviously knew what had it happened, that they've had this, you know, 18-year-old kid rock up the house and just distraught. So they've taken care of him and that's when they run triple O and then we, we went down and confirmed it and then came back. And, yeah, they just... Yeah, we just went in, they showed us into the house and obviously the neighbours knew what the what it was going to be. Um, but I think yeah. their son was hoping that it wasn't or whatever, but he was obviously in shock. So, yeah, we all went into the lounge room and I remember I was kneeling down. 
disappears on the couch and I was sort of kneeling down and how this is just bizarre how selfish is this but I can remember my knees were screaming because I was bending down you know how you just and I was trying to yeah give him the news and my knees are screaming and he, he wasn't saying too much and he's obviously in shock and I said to him that we think that they've suffocated and he was asking me a few little questions but nothing you know sort of yeah. And then all of a sudden he piped up and he said, what about our dog? Did you find the dog? And I lost it immediately. You know, yeah, you get that feeling in your throat where you think, oh, my yeah. God, my throat. He's trying to stop yeah. yourself from choking. Yeah, well, yeah, I got that. So I had the screaming knees and the screaming throat. And then, um, yeah, I just, I just, so, yeah, I just let the tears roll down my face. And I said, yes, um, the dogs, well, we found the dog and it's in between your mum and dad and he was sort of relieved that I didn't want to obviously cry, but I just couldn't help it. I just, yeah. But how could you not, how could you not cry or be affected by something really in a way so shocking but so beautiful, like um, so sad, it's a bit of everything. You know, how could you not? Isn't it funny how police put up this facade like, and I suppose we do have to be strong to a point, but you probably showed the human side of policing that day to that young man. Well, I came up on the radio and I'm pretty sure, actually I haven't asked Pete on for this, they probably wouldn't remember, but I'm pretty sure I actually said, yes, we've located two deceased persons and a dog. I'm pretty sure I said that. I think they may have told us that the auntie um, was at the Arthur's Creek Relief Centre. Well, it might have come from the neighbours, I'm not sure. So we went up there and um, found her. But I remember stepping out of the car and everyone was, it was like everyone was hoping that we weren't looking for them sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, Pete gave the news to the auntie. and But then, yeah, again, we had to go. Um, we couldn't spend too much time. and had to keep going. So we then um, worked our way into Strathion itself. And then, um, so that was the next contact we had with someone and that was with the, the local CFA captain. Um, and there was also a bulldozer driver there who was trying to clear a track. Um, so we were on Chad's Creek, Chad Creek Road, Chad's Creek Road, um, near their oval where we came across just a, a white board that was still intact, hadn't been burned. And then, then we saw a body lying in the grass parking area near the oval, um, not far from the car, probably about 300 metres from the car. And that's where we came across the CFA captain and oh, he was in an absolute, as you could imagine, he was in an absolute state. But he, he knew the chap on the oval and said, oh, it's oh. Peter Ebola. And he wanted to move Peter, the chap on the oval, from where he was. He was just lying out on the oval sort of thing or in this sort of grassed area in the open sort of thing. And he, he the CFA captain, David, just wanted to move him. And I had, I had a really hard time explaining to him I bet that we needed to leave him, in, you know, yeah. there because it's a crime scene, that sort of thing. And... And yes. I understand that because you'd want you don't want to leave them um, just out there in the elements. You want to um, 
it sounds silly, doesn't it? But you want to make them comfortable. You want to put a rug around them. You want to. Yeah, I he just been through absolute hell. So he lost half of his town, and yeah, just yeah. so and he knew everyone. He was the local CFA fire captain, so they're all looking to him, sort of thing. So yeah, it was just we were trying to work out how it happened. You know, why had. Peter ended mm. up on the oval and why his car, mm. car wasn't burnt. And um, We learnt later on that his wife had, uh, actually, no, I think I think that David might have told us that, that day that um, he'd been driving out in a separate car from his wife and um, she'd been driving behind him, but he failed to take a bend and suddenly stopped, so he waved her on and then, then obviously got stuck and, Mm. has um, got out of the car and yeah so I just yeah just seeing him on his own there was just really and then I thought oh god his poor wife who's seen him and you know she she's been waited on and so we we just didn't want to leave him there on his own it just didn't feel right so um Fozzie reminded me that we actually ripped up some of the cricket pitch from the oval and and tried to cover him um Mm. and sort of um, put some put it somewhere so we could put some crime scene tape as well to try and contain it. Yeah. So, but then again, we just had to keep going, so we had to leave him and. God to um, leave him. It reminds me of Anna Sharp at at the tip mm. when everyone was leaving Anna to because we had to wait for crimes. I couldn't leave her, and, yeah. and even though she was, um, you know, very deceased, I get that. Thank you to the following patrons, Alison, Ginny Hall, Jody Deeth, Laura Bray, Amy O, and Mark Ophmolovia. Emily and I are currently producing a regular video series for our patrons in which we recommend true crime documentaries, books, 
podcasts and whatever else we can think of that is entertaining in isolation. My pick for this week, by the way, is the brand new podcast that we foreshadowed some months ago. It's called Who Killed Leanne Holland? We'll have an interview with the producer of that podcast for our patrons in coming weeks. He's also the man behind Beenham Valley Road. You've heard from him before, Jamie Pultz. You can become a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime. Hey, Kiri, you know that last break Mm. we had. Is it going okay? Oh, yeah. Exactly what I wanted. But I go and have a break. You know, it's been a bit, it's a bit tough, isn't it? Like it's hard, right? Anyway, I go out and yep. Lloyd's had the solar power bloke to come round, and he's telling me all about how the solar fucking panels are going to work. <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> you know, and how they, they're not going to be going into the SEC. They're not, you know, they're going to be, uh, oh, I, thought, I felt like saying, Lloyd, you know, I've just been talking about, you know, deceased people in a in a house and his wife. Oh. Oh, bless him. God love him. Yeah, I thought I was going to be okay about the couple, but I clearly wasn't. But anyway. But how, um, really, how could you not be, how could you be okay telling a story like that? I just think it shows that. You know, we're human like anyone else and it's pretty tough. And, you know, when mm. you consider this is the first time that you've ever said, told this story, is that true? Or? I've, um, I've told snippets of it. Uh, those two incidents I spoke about, they're probably the, the hardest. So where were we? Well, we were with Pete on the Oval and you'd covered him mm. with some grass and it was about leaving him and how difficult it was to leave him but you sort of yeah. acted it's funny mm. how when they're deceased but you still want them to be comfortable i think it must have been like a carpet sort of cricket pitch so somehow yeah. we managed to rip it up and yeah again yeah just another one that we had to leave and i think um the couple from arthur's creek and and peter from the oval I suppose because all of them were identifiable. So I think that's why maybe that's why they stick in my mind or whether they were because they were the first people that we did come across. I'm not sure, but I think just the image of, with the couple in Arthur's Creek, the image of them holding their hand, you know, holding oh, each other's hands. And then with Peter, just insist on his own. And, yeah, so I think that's why they, those two in particular, um, or those three, stick in my mind. Yeah, we had to leave the Oval and then... I cannot um, imagine leaving them, Kira. What must you have felt like to leave Peter there on his own? Oh, yeah. Doesn't be anything I think, I think the only solace we got from it was we ran into um, Coxie, a guy I used to work with, but he's at crime scene now. He, well, he was in. He was in the area, so I think... He got there to process, you know, the complete process and scene. I think he got there, certainly got there that day. So that was some solace, I suppose. But, yeah, yeah, just have to, I suppose, plow you know, on. You know, it reminds me um, on um, Black Saturday when you were talking about the couple's son and they that they'd passed away, I was in a relief centre like you were at Alexandra. And I had the opposite 
an opposite story in that I'll never forget a little old man that I saw he'd lost everything and he was um, uh, in the fetal position and he was in the corner of this huge basketball stadium. You know how that's what the relief centres were? They were just basketball stadiums and everyone had their little area and there's dogs yeah. and cats and everything. And I'll never forget seeing this little old man and um, he was um, rocking sort of back and forth and all he had was this, um, it was like a, a blanket that he was lying on and he was so alone. But he was alive but so alone and just so frightened. He would have had to have been 90. And I remember a couple came up um, to the, the table where we were looking for their loved ones and people that had passed away. And you know how you've got that, what's your name, who are you looking for and all that sort of stuff. Mm. And I remember this um, couple, middle-aged couple, came up to the table and said, oh, we're looking for our, um, I'm looking for my dad. They were so distraught. And I'm looking, you know, we're looking for our dad. And um, they said, oh, he's, you know, he's elderly. And anyway, I don't know why, but I thought, I bet you it's that little man, you know. Anyway, mm-hmm. I remember taking them over and they they just, like, collapsed because I no said, way. I think I know where your dad is. I took them over and they sort of collapsed with him and it was must have been the wife and husband. And what they did was they laid each side of this little old man. Oh, my God, I'll never forget it. And they were just so, they were stroking him and, you know, oh, you're alive. It was, and like he was alive. So, yeah. and that's something that stayed with me. I've never, ever forgotten that. All the police that had anything to do with Black Saturday, we've all got, um, you know, stories like that. But. It just reminded me of them when you say about the couple mm. holding hands. Um, this was the opposite. They were alive, but it was still so traumatic. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, I think it was a trigger. Um, oh, I don't mm. know what you call it. But um, I really lost it after that. I had to leave um, the relief centre. I had to walk outside and just go and get some fresh air. And mm. I bawled my eyes out. I reckon I was so distraught over that because it reminded me of a little old man that I'd seen, and I've told this on the podcast before, about one of the most terrible things I ever saw in policing was when um, we found a little old man uh, deceased in a, a flat. He just died of natural causes, but he was in exactly the same, he was lying in the same mm. position as the old man in the in the relief centre. He only had um, a bookcase. He didn't have, he was lying on a soiled mattress. He didn't have any blankets or anything. And he had a half a bottle of scotch. And the police, the detective took it and put it under his coat and walked out. He pinched it. I have never. So I think, I think seeing that little old man alive took me right back to that because I've Mm. never forgotten that. I thought that was one of the most terrible, terrible things I've ever seen in my career. Mm. But anyway, we digress, my friend. So how did you and the boys deal with that this particular day? Like when you got back in the car, like what what was the conversation? Was it quiet? Was it, you know, like, my God. Yeah, I think 
the first day, I think it was quite, by the second day, I suppose you adapt and, you know, you started having a few little jokes around each other, you know, that what they call black humour, that sort of thing, that oh, came out. You've got to have something to get you through and if yeah. it's having a bit of a laugh and, you know, humour, it is terrible some of the things you laugh about. But Yeah, and I think the first day it just wasn't even, couldn't even use that. Usually we're pretty good at, you know, straight away. But, yeah, that day we just couldn't. And I, I think we just had to keep going and I suppose we were running on adrenaline and we soon realised that, we were no longer no longer looking for survivors. There's no way anyone could survive what we were seeing. So we were just you know house after house, and there was cars hooked up with trailers and and pet cages, you know, ready to go. You could obviously see that they were ready to go, but hadn't made it. Some remains you could start, you could make out that they're actually whether they're an adult or a child, or while well, others, yeah, we started just finding bones and, and teeth. It was. Yeah, sifting through rubble, we soon figured out that yeah, that um, the best place to look was actually if you could work out where the plumbing was in the house, you could sort of that was a good starting point because we were finding that a lot of the people, the remains we were finding were either in the bathroom or the kitchen sort of area. So that was in Strathure, and so we went to started going through there, and then. We all sort of met up with the other search teams and it seemed to be, it was late afternoon, I think, that we were sort of all, you know, swapping lists or, we're, you know, ticking off where we'd been and where they'd been and what we thought, you know, who we'd found. Or, you know, there was, oh, I think there was a couple of people in here and mm-hmm. rah, rah, rah. And I think, it was, look, I can't be exact, but I think it was about up to about 20 by that time, just in that area. But we were near the school, the Strathmore, which had been destroyed, and Strathmore is it's very um, dense forest sort of thing. It's a, but all the trees had obviously gone, and all of a sudden, we all seemed at the one time it was bizarre. We all seemed to get a mobile phone signal because usually you wouldn't get a signal up there. All our phones started beeping. I remember looking around, and everyone was on their phones, whether they were retrieving messages or whatever, and so I, I had a couple of messages and um, I think, you know, just, oh, how are you going, Marara? Um, but, yeah, so I tried to ring Paul and nothing. It went to voicemail. I don't know. I started to panic. I, I just, I think it all just got too much. And all I got thought, too much. Even though I didn't to him that morning, but because I tried calling him and I couldn't get through, I was stressing about that. So after a while, they did establish that Paul was okay. But by this time, the whole of, extended family which is extensive they all thought that paul was missing oh god it was a bit of a and then um i think lauren had tried to call police headquarters oh it was just yeah anyway um <laughs> I've got sisters too. So, I get it. <laughs> so we all had our phone calls and then all got back to it and so what are the boys like who are the boys talking to like were they losing it or were they sort of um or were they trying to control themselves or were they had that facade that so many policemen have you know i've got to be strong yeah i don't i don't remember them seeing seeing them yeah. visibly upset um but you were making up for the two of them obviously oh, clearly yeah um <laughs> <laughs> and Pete, you know, I mean, you know Pete, but um, 
you know what he's like and it was just oh yeah i've just rung the missus and you know right yeah told her how to yeah. you well. <laughs> yeah yeah um everything's great yeah yep. so um we eventually that day yeah i think we got up to about 20 and by the time it was i mean we hadn't eaten or anything so i think we headed back um back to the remember actually being when we arrived back at the station we didn't know anyone that was there I'm like who are these people you know why are they here they're in it this is our station yeah. it's funny how you yeah. get a bit protective or i don't know yeah. it was just but there was people everywhere there was just and compared to the night before where there was no one i couldn't find anyone it was just a really bizarre sort of how long had you been working by that point when you get back to the station and you there's all these strange people what sort of hours had you been working? Oh, it was probably, I reckon I was at the station at 5 in the morning, 5.30, and then and this would have been 6, 7 by the time we got back. But what you've really done is you started at 4 o'clock on the Saturday and you've gone home for a shower at 3 a.m. the following day and then you're working till 5 a.m. the following morning, yeah? Oh, so I had that... Um, when I got home to have a shower, there was a couple of hours. Well, you know, I had a shower oh, right. and then, yeah, yeah, and be then went back. Too. Yeah, that'd be yeah. a good rest. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, and then yeah. So we were just running on empty at the stage, and it's funny how I can remember um, getting yeah a bit antsy about all these people, our police that we didn't know. You know, how dare they and come on our patch? I mean, they're only help. <laughs> It was just ridiculous. I can, there was people telling bosses to get, you know, effed and, oh, yeah. just, yeah, it was just, um, yeah. Everyone's um, patience had just, you know, well, you didn't have oh, any, was, Yeah. I can remember I had a, a hissy fit because I went upstairs to the Intel office who were coordinating, you know, what we, our lists as such, and um, because they were having... Red Cross sent through the missing persons list and updating it regularly. So we had a big whiteboard and trying to figure out, you know, who was missing, who we perhaps located, that sort of thing. So I handed in my list and I remember the guy just put it in a tray. He just chucked it in a tray. And I'm like, yeah. no, you need to start looking at this now, you know. Oh, the poor guy. Yeah. He probably, yeah, I just went off. And we did have a beer that night, which is bizarre, but I remember it was very warm beer. I don't know where we got it from. Yeah, Fozzie Pete and I sat in the car park and had a beer. Um, yeah, and then I, I did manage to speak to Paul briefly on the phone, but he was at a roadblock at that stage and, and he couldn't talk. So, that yeah, went home that night. Obviously, I don't think I slept, but, you know, you try. No. Next day we reassembled and the same teams headed back up the mountain and we wanted to keep the same teams because by that stage you knew what you know what you were looking for that sort of not like the plumbing that sort of thing and and you mm -hmm. obviously you know working with mates and stuff like that so yeah. Yeah, that day we started up at um we we're concentrated on board spur road which you mentioned in your intro so that that um starts up down in st andrews and then goes right up to King Lake Central. So that becomes another, someone else's patch, but it's sort of crossed over with our patch. So we concentrated on Baldspur Road, um, but up the top end rather, because St Andrews the day before had already, we'd already found a couple of um, deceased persons in that, that end. So we started up the other end and 
the first house where we thought we had human remains was and I, it's funny i remember the numbers of the of the the houses names weren't we didn't know the names of the families then but yeah i just knew them by numbers so i remember at number 15 we had um we found three to see what we thought was three deceased persons again they were pretty much um yeah bones that sort of thing um and they appeared to be in the bathroom but we'd heard that there was an eight month old there but we we um only found what we thought was three human remains um which was a family of four so um and even then fozzy reminded me the other day when we were talking a bloke from crime scene came running up and going crazy get out of my crime scene that sort of it was just bizarre God. you know these are yeah just yeah oh you know it's not your crime scene anyway oh yeah anyway we we moved on uh i can remember at number 29 there was a family of three and at number 39 there was a family of five and then a couple and of these deceased years. persons that you saw were these deceased you found yeah. a family yeah <sighs> found a family of five um yeah so by the time we finished or well, we hadn't finished balls right but as we we're getting in that is just the the numbers were just growing um and looking at it you just thought there's no way you could survive it was just yeah it was unreal and it was actually some years later i was actually doing a um dbi course oh sorry a disaster victim identification course when I was yeah. with NT police and they used Black Saturday as a case study and yeah. they had some Victorian coppers presenting, which, yeah, it was interesting. It just brought up quite a few memories because um, they concentrated on the case study. They actually concentrated on the DVI process and that's obviously mm -hmm. um, getting your two forms of ID, so your dental or DNA or, you know, that sort of thing. But they found... Uh, family at number 15 where we found three um that was actually four um they left that was the very last family to be identified out of the whole 173 people okay. because because there was nothing left um of the eight month old because there's no teeth or yeah yeah so yeah they basically had to rely on circumstantial process of elimination basically yeah sort of brought back a few few memories on exactly who they were talking about as soon as they started talking so yeah that's number 15 yeah and it was so so yeah Bolts where road was just stands out as the worst of the worst i suppose i mean and there was obviously plenty of others but i think because it was so concentrated and we were going from door to door that that's yeah it sort of had a massive impact on us but um but did you we, find anyone alive Funny you should say that, Narelle. So <laughs> we, at the top, at the ridge um, on the King Lake Central end, we were told that um, there's a house on the top of the ridge called Drive, and the owner, Wendy, she, who was a CFA member, that she would, she would be there. So that was the final house that we got to, and I thought, how the hell? There's no way she would survive that. But, so we, sure enough, we found the car, that was totally destroyed. There was blobs of melted metal everywhere, all over the, you know, and that was, we're seeing that quite regularly, but just the, yeah, everything had just been 
So how the hell would you survive that? Um, and then there was a dead wallaby and just outside the front, well, the, what we feared was a doorway. There was a mud brick house so you could sort of make out the doorway, but there was this dead wallaby there. It was bizarre. Mm-hmm. And the yard was right on the roadside sort of thing. The house was not far from the roadside. And so we were searching all around the yard and then um, something caught my eye. I'm not sure if it was someone else saw it first, or but we, we saw something that caught our eye. It was a bright red thing. Um, went over and had a look at it, and it was actually a red dolphin torch, but it had melted into the, the roadway. So it was still intact, but the bottom of it had melted, the bit with a globe that was pointing up. So yep. the base of the torch had melted into the, the roadway. And we sort of thought, that's a bit weird, because it stood out because it was bright red, and it just seemed a little bit odd. But anyway, we just thought, okay, I actually just took a picture of it, and well, just I'll take a picture of it. And then we kept going. And then when we were inside, there was a fridge had fallen down and there seemed to be something underneath it. So we lifted it up and found some really long bones that similar to a femur, so your thigh bone. That's what it yeah. seemed like. Oh and we thought, oh. well, we just, I think by that time, you're just so exhausted. We convinced each other that they were human bones. And then we're thinking, oh, holy crap, this this person's climbed, tried to climb into the fridge yeah. and take refuge from the fire in there. And it all made sense to us at the time. And so we put the crime scene up, you know, tape up, added it yeah. to the tally, and then another crew rocked up. And, well, I mean, we were obviously delirious by this stage. We convinced them that this lady had got in the fridge. And, oh, God, everyone. So by the time we got back down the mountain, everyone in the area had heard about this diamond, uh, this woman that had perished in the fridge. So, Wendy. Yeah. Hmm. So she was on the list that we were keeping. So a few days later, I got a call from one of the girls from our office that was at the relief centre, and um, she was excited. I was so excited. She said, you'll never believe who I've just met. I thought she met a celebrity or something. And I was like, oh, who? She said, Ah, oh, you'll never believe it. The fridge lady, she's alive. <laughs> and I've gone, no way. The fridge lady. So, yeah, the fridge lady. Yeah. She very quickly explained that when you'd been rescued by a friend um, and been taken to the Austin, there was, oh. she'd been put in the back of the police car at King Lake and driven down because there was no ambulances going up. So she'd been driven down to Whittlesea and then ferried down into the Austin. And when she'd been released from hospital, she turned up at the release centre at Diamond Creek to register that she was safe. Um, and Kerry happened to be the person that was sitting next to the Red Cross desk. Yeah, yeah. And so she's relayed the story. We thought you were dead and rah, rah, rah. And, um, <laughs> Under the fridge. Yeah, told her the story. And they were dog bones. She had two dogs that were safe at the King Lake CFA, but um, she kept big bones, but they were big dogs, um, kept big bones for them to have a bit of a chew on. Um, they were the dog bones, so not of the dog, but of the tree. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. When you were um, up there, you would never in your wildest dreams think of air bones for a dog, you know. Like you would assume mm. that poor Wendy was in the fridge. Well, I, I get all that, that you sort of try and put two and two together to make sense of it, but sometimes it just doesn't make sense, does it? No, <laughs> and when you look back, you think, oh, that was stupid. But anyway, but it's funny yeah. how we all convinced each other and 
I suddenly became an expert in bones. I mean, <laughs> yeah, just, <laughs> anyway. Not. Kate and I actually caught up with um, Wendy. She became a bit of a rural myth and um, we actually were able to catch up with her. Kerry organised it. So I, I still couldn't believe that she was alive and I was actually um, obviously a, a great moment to catch up with her. I think I hugged her, you know, offered her a cup of tea. Um, but she told us, she then went into the story of how she survived. It is unbelievable. But, um, yeah, she basically, um, she was working at the CFA and, went back home, you know, she was fully kitted out and started dousing her house with um, water and stuff um, because there was embers coming and that sort of thing up the ridge and um, that then it just all exploded and she was she dropped the hose and ran into the wallaby as she headed inside the house. So that's where, where the wallaby comes into it and then um, the house was just exploding around her and she crawled into the alcove of the, the chimney, um, really struggled to breathe, obviously, but God, that she actually, yeah, got through it and realised that the worst of the fire had passed, so she crawled outside and through onto the, the roadway and she was really struggling to breathe, so she had um, really bad smoke inhalation and she put her red dolphin torch down and sat on it and that's, what melted in and it actually burnt her bum because it was so hot but that's what actually um was what we found and then she tried walking the four kilometers back up to the main road but she kept passing out and just lay, lay on the road burnt bum and everything she's yes yeah, yeah she was very unwell yeah so she lay on the road in the recovery position and but then she realized that her mobile phone was in her pocket and like the phone signal that we got in Strathewan, all of a sudden mm. had a phone signal, um, which is virtually non-existent when prior to. And then, um, yeah, she managed to make a call to her friend, who I think was in East Gippsland, who then who happened to answer the call. And I'm not quite, can't quite remember how it all happened. But then her friend um, Lorraine, who was down at King Lake CFA, managed to get through. There was trees down everywhere on that road, and so I think she walked the last couple of k, basically carried her out into the car and then drove her back down to King Lake and then yes incredible yeah so it was sort of a story that we clung on to and now you've also got a beautiful story about the blanket yes can you tell the listeners about the blanket yes where do I start so when I when I got home after the first day of searching so that Sunday I I spoke to my mum and dad um, briefly and let them know that Paul was okay and not missing as expected and rah, rah, rah. But I don't think I said much to mum and dad that night. I was, I was pretty well shattered. But um, I don't know much about the conversation, but Lauren does. She remembers every every word. She um, she's told sorry, just me. while you're on that, Lauren is your sister, your yeah, so my, elder sister. So, yeah, so there's Lauren, Sandy, then me. So she's... On the baby, she reminded me recently that I, and I, I don't remember any of this. So, um, I've just, yeah, obviously it's all a bit of a blur. But she told me that I, I was sobbing my heart out, and it was hard to make sense of what I was saying. But she recalls that I told her about the couple in the cellar that I've spoken about and their dog. Um, and then she says I was frantically and at times. I was quite hysterical, insisting that she leaves in any fire because she lives in the Macedon Ranges, so she's in a fire-prone area. Apparently I was just 
yeah, just insistent that she leaves. Yeah. Um, so after telling her a couple of the things I'd seen, and obviously the couple in, couple in the cellar and that sort of thing, she had a she was talking to her. Um, she had a, a friend in um, WA, and I think she rang Lauren to see what she could do. And Lauren saying, "Oh, there's nothing," but she said, "I've just spoken to my sister and told her friend Jen about you know." What the phone call I had with her, um, and that she felt really helpless about not being able to, you know, be a big sister for me, and was quite distraught. So Jen and Lauren had a common interest though in sewing quilts. So Jen would often sew when her disabled adult son was having a bad night with seizures. So Jen suggested to Lauren that she start on a, a quilt to give me, and Lauren thought that was a great idea and, yeah, so a few weeks, weeks later after the searches had been finished and the relief centres were sort of winding down or, you know, I, I can remember it was really hard going back to, you know, normal life. I just, everyone was struggling with it and I, and when many of us were going to the funerals or memorial services to the local people that we'd come across um, but because it was such a drawn-out process because so many of the remains couldn't be identified easily. So there was a lot of memorial services and then funerals later on. And But the first funeral I did go to was for the couple at Arthur's Creek, that's um, Joseph and, and Glenis, um, because they were um, probably one of the first to be identified because they were identifiable so they could actually have a proper funeral yeah. for them. So Fozzie and I went to the funeral, and which was, yeah, I was glad we went, but obviously there was pretty distressing but for everyone oh. but yeah pretty distraught that day but that afternoon I got a, a card to collect a parcel from the post office and I wasn't expecting any parcels but it was addressed to me so I, I thought oh maybe it's something I've ordered on eBay or something or yes yeah, so I went up and got the parcel and I didn't recognize the sender's details I just um so I checked that it was addressed to me and it definitely was my name so so I took it and I was quite intrigued so I waited I didn't wait until I got home I just sat in the car and opened it up and a letter fell out of this parcel and I opened it up a bit more and I could see that there was a this beautiful handmade quilt and and actually since I've asked uh, since you asked me to do this podcast I actually have searched everywhere for this letter but because I know I did keep it but I can't find it so I'll probably find it tonight once we've finished but yeah. I can still remember what it said and it was it was obviously from Jen, Lauren's friend from WA. Um, she wrote that after hearing what Lauren had told her about what we were seeing with my colleagues and she wanted to make this quilt for me to show, you know, her appreciation for the work that we were doing and for some comfort for me when I was having a bad day and that sort of, yeah, that, that was the theme of the letter. So I, I, I sat in the car for eight. I was just sobbing. I was just... Such yeah, a beautiful act, random act of yeah, kindness. Absolutely. Yeah. I was just completely overwhelmed with how a complete stranger could show such an appreciation for and an understanding of what we were, were going through. It was just, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, and the quilt was, oh, it was just beautiful. It was, you know, I think the nicest thing that anyone's ever, ever done. Yeah. I've still got it. Yeah. 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 It's... It's beautiful. And did you ever did you ever speak to Jen or um, the lady that made the quilt? 
No, I actually um I did re write that a be letter. Tough, um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I just wanted her to know how much uh, it was appreciated that she could appreciate. Yeah, but I've still got the quill and it's on. I've got it on the spare bed. So yeah, I look at it every day. That's beautiful. In fact, in fact, I think I've um kept under that quilt, haven't I? I'm sure that um when I came yeah, up to end, yeah, when I came up to NT um to see you, I think I slept under that quilt. Oh, it's just such a beautiful quilt. So yeah, it's just. But I just, I mean, that we were just a tiny, tiny part of that, uh, you know, that whole horrible um, set of circumstances. But there, so many people would have so many stories or recollections yeah. of that they've enjoyed, yeah. and yeah, it's just there is, oh, there's so many things that even just talking to Pete and Fozzie recently that we can, you know. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. Imagine how many yeah. how many stories there are out there about Black Saturday or you know anything that's such like a traumatic event like that. It's just the number of police that attended those fires. They would all have um, stories, you mm. know, sad stories and beautiful stories like you know the quilt. You said before that you've spoken to your like your sisters and your mum, your poor mum, putting her through that. I suppose you have spoken a lot of members knowing to, that today was coming up to help research-wise and to, you know, help you remember because obviously mm. in times of stress you forget a lot of things. But they were the ones who you called when you were so distraught. And um, I suppose we find out, don't we, that um, there is a ripple effect for everyone involved in these sort of things. And the ripple effect had a huge effect on um, your family. Yep. It wasn't until recently when I spoke to Lauren about doing this podcast that that's obviously when I learned about that phone call that I, I mean, I knew I spoke to her, but I had no idea that how much it had affected her. She was trying to be that support for me, but yeah, it just felt so, I suppose, useless. I mean, she's always been my big sister, so, you know. She's always wanted to be protecting me, and um, and she saw a lot of saw a lot of trauma herself in the aftermath because she was um helping out with the animal aid in King Lake, so she saw a lot of terrible things up there as well. So yeah, I just didn't realise how much my experience had affected her. And she spoke to me about she has one vivid memory of when she was in King Lake on that Wednesday, so a couple of days later. And I was in Strathewan still, but we couldn't meet up. I mean, there are stones throw away, really, but we just couldn't meet up. Yeah. You know, we're texting each other, but she was obvious. And there's roadblocks and all that sort of thing that you had to deal with. But she says she's that's where she's never felt so useless. We hadn't seen each other. We'd only spoken to each other on the phone. She just wanted to give me a hug, you know, that sort of thing. And she just said that, that it was the hardest thing she couldn't she remembers because she couldn't. And she remembers looking over to the ridge at Strathewan and that she just you can you're right there and my sister's yeah. right over there and I can't even yeah. hold her or touch her or yeah. comfort her. And I I think I shared a lot of details with her and some that I probably shouldn't have, but um yeah. Yeah. I think she I suppose she was outside that inner circle that listened mm. to me and I suppose um mm. so yeah, yeah. the things that I told her that I had no idea I told her, I thought, oh, Jesus Christ. Oh my god, what yeah. a 
I'd done. And because of my frantic insistence on that on that first phone call of making her promise that she leaves whenever there is fire by, by her own admission, she has become super hypervigilant to the case of to the point of paranoia whenever there's fires around and yeah, and that's yeah. the ripple effect that I'm talking about, you know, like, mm. and Lauren would be one of, you know, just so many. And, you know, your mum and dad probably wouldn't um, say anything to you because, that, you know, maybe they don't want to worry you, but the ripple effect of that phone call you made to your mum, for instance, and it, it's funny you talk about um, you can't believe what you told Lauren. I think every now and then as police you have to, keep a lot of things to yourself because you think why would I bring somebody into that um, traumatic grief-stricken world of what mm -hmm. I've seen and everything but sometimes you just get so full of grief and that that you've got to unwind or mm -hmm. unload on somebody and I get that I, I have as you know my two sisters I feel I've probably told them too much in my time as well and I know stuff that I've told them and a couple of really close girlfriends, I know I shouldn't have, but I needed to. But unfortunately, my sisters and my girlfriends have never forgotten what I've told them either. I mean, Paul's got different recollections. Yeah. Fozzie and Pete have got different recollections. I mean, yeah. we're all there together and we've all seen different things that affected yeah. us in different ways. So, yeah, it's just, um, yeah, that's interesting. Mm. Well. I want, I want to say thank you for sharing a story which needs to be told and it needs to be heard. The community really need to know how difficult uh, policing can be. The police have got a hammering lately and from a personal viewpoint, I think uh, totally justified. But on the other hand, there's so many members out there doing tasks like Black Saturday, which few hear about, particularly you know, somebody like yourself that has been through something that none of us would ever, ever want to go through. And I just want to say that your courage in sharing such a harrowing experience is something I think everyone out there will appreciate and thank you. It's been tough, hasn't it? We've had to have a couple of breaks when the social isolation finishes and all that. I'm going to come up there and I'm going to give you the biggest hug, heartfelt hug that I can. Thank you, my friend, not just from me, but from all of Victoria. You're a hero. You really, no, no, no. you are. No, no. And Foz and Pete. Thank you. <laughs> thanks for having me and thanks for listening. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, made in association with the ACAST Creator Network. We'll be back next week. Take care. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.